The scripture this morning comes from the book of Isaiah, chapter 9. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. Thank you, Jen. Good morning, everybody. Uh, before we get into the message, there's something I want to just kind of uh, update you on. Our search team for the new uh, uh, director of student ministries has still been working. We've been working all fall. And uh, one of the things we did is uh, we uh, recruited one person and uh, really tried to get them, and, and in the end, though, they decided to stay at the position they were at, uh, where they were. And then uh, another person uh, we, uh, we got to know through a series of interviews and offered the position, and then they ended up taking a position somewhere else. And so in neither case was it a salary issue or a problem with Faith Westwood. It's just one of those things that happened. But, you know, the way I look at it, um, this is... Uh, this is not a bad thing, this, and I'm not discouraged because I think this is God's way of continuing to guide us forward. Um, and I, I also want to thank Holly Timberlake for stepping into the role of student ministry director uh, until we find such a person. And, and I'm also asking you to be in prayer about this. Uh, pray for us to find this person and especially even be in prayer this week because our, our search team is going to have another meeting this week uh, to work on this. So... Let's, let's begin pray about it now, shall we? Lord Jesus, uh, we are your people. You've, you've called us your church, and this is yours. And we're counting on you to lead the way. Uh, so, Lord, please bring us someone to, uh, to lead our student ministry. We don't know if it's somebody who's right here in our church now or someone who we've not yet met. But whoever you have prepared for us, Lord... Um, we're asking you to open the door, send them our way, and also give all of us on the search team uh, the wisdom to discern um, each candidate and whether they're a fit for Faith Westwood. And now, Holy Spirit, stir in our hearts. Open our minds to your word. Breathe your life into us that we may see Jesus and be transformed. We pray in his name. Amen. <clears throat> What's in a name? What's in a name? Those words from William Shakespeare uh, are spoken uh, from the lips of Juliet to Romeo. And uh, <clears throat> what's in a name, she says, that which we call a rose by any other name, would smell as sweet. So she's telling her love that it doesn't matter what family he comes from, she loves him, regardless of the family name he wears. What's in a name? On Thanksgiving, I got to spend some time with uh, uh, my nephew's kids. Uh, he has six of them. And uh, one of them is Claire. And that's a French word that means light. Did you know that? 
and her older sister in Hannah is Hannah, which is a Hebrew word uh, for grace or favor. And their baby brother is Peter, uh, and the word the name Peter comes from the Greek word Petros, meaning rock. And of course, you might remember in the Bible that Jesus gave his Simon, his his disciple Simon, the nickname Peter, Petros, rock. My name, Stephen, also comes from a Greek word. Uh, Stephanos means crown. What is in a name? The angel told Joseph that the child her betrothed Mary was carrying was to be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. And, of course, Jesus never went by that name. We don't know of any other time people, somebody called Jesus that, but it's a name that describes him. You know, the Bible has many names to, of Jesus and titles and descriptors for Jesus. And I'm going to be sharing uh, some of those in my daily text messages this week. If you, if you got that this morning, you know that. Uh, and if you're not getting my, my daily Bible and prayer text messages, and if you want to join the 350 people who are getting them, then just make a note on your connection card today, all right? And we'll be in touch about that, and, and um, you can start getting them as soon as next Sunday. Today, as, as uh, Jen was saying, today is our second Sunday of Advent, and the second Sunday in our series, a light has in our darkness a light has dawned. And today the message is, what kind of child is this? So let's open our Bibles, will you? Grab a pew Bible if you didn't bring your own and uh, to uh, page 687, uh, and, uh, which is, and we'll, at the bottom of the page you'll find Isaiah 9, verse 6. At our house, uh, Trisha has been working hard to get our house decorated for Christmas, and I've been working hard watching her. <laughs> That's how it works at our house. On our living room end table, she has set up this little sign. It's not very big, only about like that. And it has most of this verse that we're going to be looking at today. It leaves a little part out of it, but not much. Uh, but, you know, especially at this time of year, we all like to fill our homes with, with little verses and, and pieces of the promises of the coming Messiah. So, Isaiah 9, 6. Last weekend, uh, we looked at the first half of verse 6. For to us a child is born... To us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. Today we're looking at the second half. Will you say it with me, the rest of the verse? And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Now, in Handel's Messiah, this particular aria, the music for the first half of verse 6 has all, all the different parts of the choir coming in at different times and bouncing off separately off each other like popcorn. For unto us a child is born, for unto us a child is born. And then in the second half of verse 6, Handel brings all the voices together to emphatically proclaim who this child is. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. I don't know whether I was singing the soprano part or the bass part right there, but it was something like that. And today we're focusing on those four titles. As I said last week, this prophecy has an original fulfillment 
and an ultimate fulfillment. Original fulfillment and an ultimate fulfillment. Back in the 8th century B.C., King Ahaz defies the word of the Lord and allies himself with the big, bad, bully Assyrian Empire. We go, Ahaz, what were you thinking? The prophet Isaiah tells King Ahaz that no matter how much money he pays to Assyria, they cannot be trusted. And it's a lesson that Ahaz learns the hard way. But there is hope for the little kingdom of Judah. A new heir to the throne has been born, and he will be faithful to the Lord where his father was not. Eventually, in 735 B.C., King Ahaz dies, and his 25-year-old son, Hezekiah, ascends to the throne. 2 Kings 18.5 says, Hezekiah trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel. There was no one like him among all the other kings of Judah, either before him or after him. And at one point, Hezekiah deserves, he's, decides he's not going to serve the Assyrian king anymore. Done with him. So the Assyrian army marches to Judah and captures all the fortified cities coming next and finally for Jerusalem. Finally, Hezekiah, he kind of caves into his fears and tells the Assyrian king, okay, 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 I'll, I'll pay you all my money all the gold and silver, just leave us alone. But the Assyrian king is determined to teach Hezekiah a lesson and to capture Jerusalem. So he sends his massive army, and they set up camp outside the walls of Jerusalem. Then the Assyrian king writes Hezekiah a letter taunting him, telling him that none of the other gods of the other nations were able to save them. Why would it be any different with you? Judah's God, called Yahweh, will not be able to save you either. In the Old Testament, wherever you see the word LORD in all capital letters, even in this verse, that's a translation of the Hebrew name for God, Yahweh. When Hezekiah receives this letter from, from the Assyrian king, he goes up to the temple, and he enrolls that letter, and he spreads it out flat before the Lord, like he's saying, look at this, God. See what he said? How can you let him get by with this? Don't let him do this to us. And in the end of the prayer, he says, now, Yahweh, our God, deliver us from the Assyrian king's hand so that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone, Yahweh, are God. Next morning, the Assyrian army awakes to find that a significant portion of their fighting force has died in the night. The Bible says an angel of the Lord struck them down. Filled with fear, the Assyrians pack up and go home, never to return. God heard Hezekiah's prayer, and they were saved. Hezekiah was a good king. One of the better kings, one of the most faithful uh, to the Lord of, of all of the, the kingdoms, uh, kings of Israel and Judah. <clears throat> but could he be described by the titles in this verse? Isaiah 9, 6. Wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. I mean, that's going too far, don't you think? 
Of course, there is another way to look at it. Um, If it is referring to Hezekiah, uh, those four titles could be statements as far as his way of giving honor to God. And, of course, names were kind of like that in the Old Testament especially. Uh, for, For example, the name Jehoshaphat. And I'm kind of disappointed some of you haven't named your kids this. Come on now. Jehoshaphat's perfectly good name. And it means the Lord is judge. Now, it doesn't mean Jehoshaphat was a judge, but he says the Lord is judge. And, and, and you, could, you could possibly do the same thing with this title. You could translate it, a wonderful counselor is the mighty God. An everlasting father is the prince of peace. Now, that might be the original fulfillment, but it's, hard, it's not hard to see that Isaiah's words stretch beyond the boundaries of the 8th century B.C. This prophecy reaches for an even greater goal. This prophecy cries out for a Messiah. And so what I'd like to do now is look at each of these four titles and see how Jesus fits and fulfills each one. First, Jesus is our wonderful counselor. The Hebrew word translated wonderful here is almost exclusively used to speak of God and his words and his deeds. You know, God's saving actions are a wonder to behold. They are wonderful. And that's how people reacted to Jesus, right? His words and his ways were life-giving. He performed wonders. People were amazed by him. He was wonderful. Jesus was also a counselor. Now, that doesn't mean that he was the same as a mental health therapist. Although he did bring good mental health to people, but the word counselor in the Bible uh, means someone who advises you, okay? Uh, A trusted advisor at your side. And when you read the four Gospels about Jesus, you see the wisdom of God in person. Matter of fact, some of the Gospels even are very intentional about painting Jesus as the wisdom of God in person. So he is our wise advisor, our wonderful counselor. Next, Jesus is the mighty God, but let me clarify. Let me clarify. Notice how Jesus does not strut onto the stage of human history and say, Hi, everybody, I'm God. No, he doesn't do that. Um, And yet the, the entire New Testament points to both the godness and the humanness of Jesus. And yet, I think it would be a mistake to assume that he simply had a God mind and a human body. I think that's probably a natural thing for us to think, that he had a God mind and a human body, but it's, I, I think it's more integrated than that. Uh, I believe Jesus experienced the limitations of his humanity, even intellectually, while he was here on earth. During his earthly life, would he have known that the earth orbited around the sun instead of the sun orbiting around the earth? I don't think so. Maybe you disagree. But I think at that level, he would have been a product of his time, of his culture. Would he have been able to speak every language and play every musical instrument? I mean, just do anything. I don't think so. 
I think he experienced the limitations of his humanity. You know, in the TV series, The Chosen, I like how it shows Jesus working out uh, what he wants to say in the upcoming Sermon on the Mount. And you see times where he's kind of getting away by himself and he's working on things and, and he has uh, Matthew write down notes for him and then he practices a, a while and, and you think, well, why would he have to do that? You know, of course, the Bible doesn't say he did, but I think given the limitations of his humanity, it's entirely plausible that Jesus took some time to prepare and to practice. And yet, the more people get to know this, this humble, righteous, merciful person, the more they see him doing things that only Yahweh does. He commands the wind and the waves. He gives sight to the blind. He reveals a way of life higher than Moses' law. He forgives sin and demonstrates the authority to do so. You know, first century Jews, uh, uh, they looked forward to the day when Yahweh was going to return to Israel in power, when he would dwell among them like a, a mighty cloud descending upon the temple, when he would inaugurate the new kingdom. And Jesus comes along and announces that the good news, that it is all beginning to happen, and it's all happening through him. My favorite Bible scholar, N.T. Wright, says, Jesus believed himself called to do and be what in the Scriptures only Israel's God did and was. Let me say that again. Jesus believed himself called to do and be what in the Scriptures only Israel's God did and was. Jesus is the mighty God. And Jesus is the everlasting Father. Now, that's going to be confusing, right? Because uh, Jesus is not the Father in the sense of the Trinity. Uh, Christians teach that, we teach that uh, God is three in one, Father, Son, and Spirit. Jesus is the Son, not the Father, not the Spirit. But all three are of one essence, one being. In John 14, 9, Jesus says, Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. If you want to know what God is like, the best picture we have is Jesus. In Colossians 1.15, the Apostle Paul agrees. He says, the Son is the image of the invisible God. So when we call one person of the Trinity Father and the other is the Son, we should not assume that we're talking about like it's just like human fathers and sons, all right? I mean, my son shares half of my DNA, uh, but we do not share one essence, one being, as Jesus and his heavenly Father do. And I think this is really important. This is, this is really important theology. It's to rem and we remember that when it comes to the cross, because when Jesus lays down his life to atone for the sin of humanity, this is not the Father sending someone else to pay the price and do his dirty work for him, to suffer and satisfy his wrath. You see, Jesus and the Father are one. And John 3.16 doesn't say God was so angry with the world that he sent his only son, who fortunately loves us. 
No, he said, God so loved the world that he sent his only son. You see, the cross is God sacrificing himself out of love for us. It's God taking on our suffering to atone for our sins. Only through Jesus do we truly know the full extent of the Father's love. I also find it interesting that in John chapter 13, Jesus, after he washes his disciples' feet, he he looks up at them and calls them, My children. My children. And I think in that sense, Jesus could say that to you and me, my children, because we are dear to him. We are his family. And finally, Jesus is the Prince of Peace. And peace here, you know, it means so much more than um, just the absence of war. Uh, the Hebrew word here is shalom, and it means harmony and wholeness it means completeness and contentment it means having thriving healthy relationships with God and and with each other and so Prince Jesus brings his reign of shalom to the world and his resurrection marks the beginning of that reign and his second coming will usher in the fullness of that shalom I'd like to I'd like to end with a story that I hope will help us picture Jesus as the Prince of Peace. A certain kingdom was filled with feuding, each province waging war on the others. Every province believed that it was justified in taking up arms against its neighbors out of revenge for all the past grievances. And the war went on. For generation after generation, and people, until people could no longer remember why it had started in the first place. And we know that war brings misery, doesn't it? They would often set fire to uh, the other's fields, which uh, left many people hungry and sick. Their, their young and strong were often killed in battle. And all of this broke the king's heart. What could he do? to stop the warfare, the civil war in his kingdom. He could have sent his royal guard to uh, round up and and execute all the agitators, but wouldn't that only lead to more anger and revenge? And yet the king held out hope that one day he would finally be able to heal his nation and unite them as one strong, prosperous people. The king knew that if he came to them in person and attempted to broker peace, that his subjects would would recognize his face immediately. And and they would fear his royal guard. But it would never change their hearts. So he sent out his son, whose face they did not know. The prince went among the people, disguised as a commoner, When the time was right, he became a traveling proclaimer, going from province to province and announcing that the the day was on its way when the hostilities would cease and the kingdom would be restored to peace and prosperity. And he invited those who believed him to join him and spread the news. 
The proclaimer said that he was sent by the king. Some believed him and some did not. And yet, at times, it seemed like he was acting like more than a messenger. He pardoned the agitators. He forgave unpaid taxes. He released prisoners of war. A few people began to hope that he might be the next king. Of course, as with any war, those who prosper from the conflict, they don't want to see it end, do they? And they were not happy with the proclaimer. The war profiteers from every province came together to assassinate this threat to their power and to their fortune. Fortunately, the king learned of their plot and drew them into a trap where they were arrested and held for trial. Then the king announced what some had already begun to suspect, that the proclaimer was indeed the prince. And from that day on, they would reign together, inaugurating an era of peace and prosperity. This, my friends, is Jesus. He is the Prince of Peace. Today, Jesus reigns on the throne with his Father, bringing shalom to the world. And this same Jesus is inviting you to open your heart to him. He's calling your name because he wants to we want you to know him and experience him. I, I believe that he has been calling you and, and, you know, working in your heart for a long time, hoping that you'll listen, hoping that you'll respond. Maybe you've sensed it. Maybe you've wondered if he's calling you. Have you felt him trying to get your attention? Letting you know that he loves you, that he wants, to, he wants you to begin a new life that he has for you. I hope that today you'll tell him, okay, Lord, I hear you. I need you. I need what only you can give. I need the forgiveness. I need the hope. I need the new life. So forever, starting today, forever, I am yours. If you'll take me as I am, I'm yours. Let's pray. Oh, Lord Jesus, oh, we're so glad that, that you came, that you were sent by the Father. You are the ultimate fulfillment of prophecy. You are the promise come to pass. We worship you, Jesus. You are the presence of God in person. And today we cannot help but fall at your feet and proclaim that you are the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. And one day we will join every knee in bowing and every tongue in confessing that you are Lord to the glory of God the Father. And all God's people said, Amen.